the Sunday Morning Linux Review with Mary Tomich, Tom Lawrence, and Tony Bemis as the Beaver. And this is episode 298, 25 years of GNU. Uh, this is Tony Bemis. Tom Lawrence. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. And uh, the episode name for this week, it, or is from this week, is 25 years ago. was when GNU was uh, first founded. And that's uh, in 1984, Richard Solomon quit his job at MIT to begin the writing of GNU software. And I'm assuming most people that listen to our show knows what GNU means. But just for completion or completeness, I will say it. And it's GNU is a recursive acronym, meaning the G in GNU refers to GNU, is not Unix. Uh, so that's uh, that's it. I know. And then it, history from there. There's a couple really good movies out there about uh, the history of, of Revolution tech. Revolution OS. Yeah, Revolution OS is the one I think of too. Uh, yeah, about Linux and GNU and, and open source, and it's pretty cool. I think a fun project. And I know someone talked about it a couple times, uh, but maybe maybe I'll like take this on. <laughs> I don't, it's an ambitious idea, but to um, redo Revolution OS in modern times, like because that's I mean that went from like two thousand four or five. It's been a number wow. of years, mm-hmm. and it we've certainly long. seen some major changes. Um, from us being the crazy people. And it's actually one of the articles I have in uh, the news to talk about is how open source took over the world. It's a really interesting, like we've seen a transition. We went from being the crazy people to, well, I guess partly because now we're in charge. (laughs) So I think that's what relates to it. But it, you know, open source has really taken over. Yep, definitely. Yeah. And and Tom and I, we've actually met Stallman, so. Yeah, we both met Stallman. He's, he's an experience. It's a, it was an experience. <laughs> and Phil has been emailed by him. That's an experience, too. I met him at Wayne State University, um, got to talk to him for a couple minutes, and then I got to have an email chain that went on for far too long. <laughs> and at one point I was like, you know, I shouldn't have met him. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's a happy new year for all of us. So what have you been doing so far this year, Tony? Yeah, uh, this year I've been... Continuing my saga with uh, FreeNAS. Um, so I was talking about the fans last time. It was mm-hmm. That I can't slow them down via the motherboard or software. So I bought this uh, hard drive or fan controller. And the fan controller apparently only does 10 watts per fan. And I'm assuming for p- uh, desktop computers, it's fine. But on a server com- uh, fans, which are like, I don't know, uh, at 12 volt and 1.1 amp is what, yeah, 13 watt? Yeah, watt. 13 watt roughly. If I plug more than two fans in, the whole the whole server crashes. Like oh. It, it pa- wow. And I didn't realize that was what was going on, except for when I first plugged everything in, and then the whole thing will zing, 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 like power on and off, <laughs> on and off. And I'm like, oh, crap, I started unplugging things. Now, the it'll run for a while. And then it'll just randomly reboot. Because hmm. uh, I, now I have the hard drive or that fan controller completely unplugged and off to the side. And now it'll just reboot. So I don't know whether the BIOS got screwed up and I need to do a BIOS reset or whether my power supplies are going bad. Hopefully it's not the motherboard I just got. Uh, 
I don't know. Do you wow. know, I, I get it when people say, do you build it or buy it? And sometimes yeah. I don't mind buying it, like, complete because of this. Yeah. It's like, I, <laughs> at some point, it's like, oh, all these little aggravations when you try to build something. And I've run into that myself. That's one of the reasons even our last free nest here, we just bought it. Because yeah. I was like, I, I have so much to do. Right. And, uh, you know, and I would completely agree. If I had a spare $1,000 to put down on, oh, the, yeah, yeah. you it, know, then I, w- I would completely do it. Even if I had a spare $500 to put on a... Uh, Synology or something, mm-hmm. I'd probably still do that. But I've got like two hundred bucks, and yeah. So now I'm trying to do enterprise level stuff with two hundred dollars. And so, what are your requirements and and your solution? Like, you already have the hard drive, so you just need the you know something to put the hard drives in, right? Basically, uh, pretty much. Yeah. So I have another computer case. Uh, so I need something that. Well, I want to run FreeNAS or something I can run VMs and share files. Uh, to my system. So, and all my data is in uh, Zpool, Freenet Zpool right now. I have it all backed up. So I guess if I were to trash the Zpool, it wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, so that's why now I'm like, well, do I stick with FreeNAS? I would say you um, should be able to go on eBay f- for less than $500, maybe even the $200. You should be able to find a server that has the specs you need and then just throw your hard drives in there and then you wouldn't have to mess with any of the you know, hardware swapping anymore. Yeah, the drives I have are the standard desktop size drives. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the things I've been finding are um, the smaller, like, SAS drive. The T30, them, uh, depending, well, you want rack. Well, I mean, the PowerEdge T30, and there's some others uh, support standard hard format hard drives. So it could okay. be an option to consider yeah. eBay um, that one, possibly. Yeah, I'll probably have to end up doing that. Back before Christmas, Tom sent me uh, some good eBay links of from a reputable seller um, selling uh, servers with and without hard drives for a reasonable price. Mm. I'll send that to you after the show, and I'll leave it in the show notes, too, for the rest of the listeners. Unix Surplus. Great place. All right. Anyway, so that's what I've been Mm. battling with. (laughs) So how about you, Tom? Uh, The whole project, the giant hole, is all finished and... Uh, the insurance company is only covering part of it, so I've been dealing with that on my personal life, but whatever. Oh, you're back. <laughs> I yeah, need, like, hole. a GoFundMe for filling the hole that it left in my bank account. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> so we're working on that. Um, you don't have a 20-foot hole in your backyard anymore, do you? It was a 40-foot hole. 40 foot. And I quit measuring it in Holy feet, cow. and I started measuring it in dollars at some point. <laughs> 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 so anyways, um, technology-wise, though, we... Year end is always fun because you figure out uh, in a business what went wrong and what went right and decide what terms. So we redid a bunch of sheets, got them all modified for our contractors for 2019, which brought me, I, unfortunately, I guess, but it, it just works a little bit deeper into the Googleverse. Uh, but that's life. Um, an interesting note, I was reached out to and he wants to do some videos uh, with me and he's been producing videos himself. He has a YouTube channel. A person who used to work and do the training and design at Zabbix. Uh, he's over in Europe. Super nice person. I've chatted with him a couple times now and he wants to help produce a bunch of uh, Zabbix content. He's himself mm. producing it, but he's kind of looking for some other people to collaborate with um, and talk about Zabbix. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, He's got some really good, like, how to write triggers and stuff like that on his videos. So they're in-depth, but he helped write some of this code. So he's obviously – and he's well-spoken enough to do a good YouTube video and tutorial on each segment of it. So uh, that's kind Mm. of an exciting thing. Um, We have more things that have been sent to us. Uh, 
they're, they're in the pile over here. So I have more things to review, which I'm getting behind on. So I'm trying to work on how my strategy is going to go. Is I need to dedicate more of my time during the week now, not just the weekends, to doing YouTube. It's quite a pile you got there. There is. <laughs> there, those are giant site-to-sites. Uh, the point-to-multi-point site-to-site stuff. There is... That is a was that a Synology over there? Yes, yeah, it they is. sent me that. Um, that even has Seagate Iron Gate, uh, were they iron side hard drives? Iron something. Mm. Um, the high end enterprise drives in it. So these companies are excited because my YouTube channels get better. I'm excited, but I, I don't want to fail them. So I got to figure out a way to, to not have them sitting on shelves and actually all getting reviewed. <laughs> um, and we finished. Uh, knock on wood, all the details have been sorted out, so I have to do my video on how to deploy 300 Unify access points and all the problems you will have and how we solved all those problems, including uh, limiting the amount of broadcast that was causing uh, bandwidth issues, which is a write-up on Unify. But I'm just going to walk through people. If you decide to put 300 access points out there, there's a couple things you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first dumb problem was Unify limits each individual session to 200 devices. So first problem was, where's the rest of my devices <laughs> and why won't they adopt? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to walk through that. It's going to be a fun video uh, doing things at scale. And uh, I think that's really it. I, we, a lot of projects we finished, I was kind of surprised how well they went. Like I was just bracing for impact on a lot of them. And it's like, oh, it works and the customer's happy and it's working. Uh, we did a whole EDI. Um, it's a data interchange format for a transport, transport company. And a good part, once we're all done with this, we're looking at open sourcing how we wrote some of it. So um, even though it costs thousands of dollars to write, um, no, everyone involved seems to agree we don't mind open sourcing any of the stuff that we did. So to help people in the future. So we're looking at a couple ideas around, uh, you know, I'm just all in on open source. This is Let's just say that. So even though I, I literally had to spend because someone always said I'm oh, I like open source because I'm cheap. I get that way too much in YouTube comments. I'm like, no, I literally will fund something in open source that I don't mind. And mm -hmm. sometimes I have to pay because there's the thing I need is not written, but I bet someone else needs it too. Yeah, I donated yeah. to uh, Proxmox. <clears throat> I didn't need to have a license because it's free. And yeah, you do get some features, but I wanted to help them out. I used the heck out of it. Yeah, so. yeah. So that's a uh, you know. That's kind of uh, what I've been working on and everything else. Oh, and I did buy some new toys. I have a fancy new lens that makes things look cool. So mm. added, added to the collection of uh, things that I have. <laughs> I think that's it. Other than I'm my usual, uh, oh, I probably will have a question maybe for Phil because he's already going to help me with Go Access. I know because Phil can sort out logs by staring at them. <laughs> he can make them organize. <laughs> You can send all questions to show at smlr.us. And Matt Yackel, I have still not forgotten you. I promise I'll get back to your email. So, um, but I, I started redoing uh, VMs that weren't encrypted. I'm going to have every VM is going to have a boot password. I want it to, and any VM, if it boots, it has a password. Uh, so I may have a couple questions around that when I get to them. Yeah, I remember we had feedback about someone who was asking about yes. that. And then someone wrote in with a very clever workaround that I tested in VirtualBox. Yep. And it was actually it was actually pretty cool. And that's uh, what I'm playing with, using too. Using DropBear, I believe, if I remember correctly. So Sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it was great. Like, I actually just watched the, the, the machine unlock and then continue booting right from an SSH script uh, that I fired off and... There you go. Yep. So I'm looking at just some of those solutions. I'm always ever vigilant with security, tightening it up, and all that fun stuff. How about you, Phil? Uh, my wife and I have been doing a lot of traveling. We spent the holidays with uh, her parents and um, 
happened to miss the the previous show due to traveling back. Um, finished up the solar panel project. I'm just waiting on the inspector to come out and approve the system. Oh, cool. Then I can turn it on. Phil's solar. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's going to be so fun. And then it's going to be real fun uh, filling in all the trenches that that got dug up and didn't fill in before the ground froze. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's life. Yeah. Uh, as far as technical projects, over the holidays, my wife and I started a, a family blog, which is really just taking all of the pictures from her phone and then talking about them. But there's a cool technology-related aspect to this because we're storing all this content on GitHub, and whenever we push a commit or some code or something, uh, GitHub fires a webhook to my server, which then runs a script on my server to build the HTML, the CSS, the JavaScript, all of that, and then um, that happens in a in a container, and then it deploys, meaning it r-syncs that data over to my uh, web root. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, so from from either of our laptops, we can just update our website, and it goes through the cool CI, CD tool chain. I thought about doing wow. the same thing. I thought about using Flask and then putting that in version control and then just doing a similar thing with Flask. And uh, as always, we actually leave a link to Phil's GitHub inside of... Uh, the, it's on all of our stuff for Phil's kiddos. He publishes all this, right? Yes. Um, everything except for the server-side build script is published, but there's nothing secret in there. Um, so I can I can show off using uh, some new technology that I found over the break. Uh, and then I did, I did one fun thing in the house, which was updating the PFSense firewall, but that was about as fun as me uh, twiddling my thumbs while... <laughs> it rebooted successfully. <laughs> yes. Yes. But um, I did do, um, kind of related, if you want to watch it, I did a breakdown of uh, Sericata and tracing I stuff. did see that uh, yeah. come up just the other day. Yeah, so I did some of that. I showed how the trace through that. But we also, I fixed in Quebec yesterday a really weird uh, problem, and it was DNS, you know, because it's DNS all the time. If the interface is running slow and PHP hangs uh, in PFSense, you could have uh, a bad DNS server. And it's kind of a weird bug in PFSense that the not the DNS server that hands out DNS to your network, P- DNS settings inside of PFSense, if you force it to a certain gateway and that gateway goes down, uh, change that gateway not to be that way because you will hang up the interface and not be able to use PFSense. It'll work at a snail's pace. Hmm. Interesting problem. Hmm. It's obscure, too. Um, it's not in part of their documentation. That So it's a... It, I didn't know it either. We had a, it, it creates some of the weirdest errors that none of them think it's DNS. It just creates all kinds of PHP form errors, but not DNS failures. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that was a problem I solved uh, yesterday in Quebec. It was kind of working yeah. remotely. That's it for me. How about yep. you, Jay? <laughs> I've been doing lots of Ansible work. Um, Ooh, fun. Yeah. It's one of my favorite technologies. And I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show before, but just in case I haven't, I maintain an Ansible repo for building my my laptops and desktops because I don't want to manually redo configuration. I distro hop a lot. So you can imagine the amount of work that it's required if I wipe my machine, reinstall it. You know, i got to set up my keyboard shortcuts, wallpaper, install all my applications, my configuration files. Next thing you know, four hours later, I'm still adding configuration to my machine. So... 
My Ansible repo actually does everything from a command line Linux install. I can install just Ubuntu server, Ubuntu minimal, no login, um, graphical interface at all. Run my, my Ansible script and it'll build my distribution all the way up to a working login manager. My desktop environment GNOME will be installed. It'll set my keyboard shortcuts, my wallpaper, my GTK theme, uh, pretty much everything. But the problem was I had a repository for Arch Linux. I had one for Debian and Ubuntu separate because of the nature they're so different. So my, my work lately has been combining them into one master repository that regardless of what distro I'm using, it'll automatically just do the accordingly uh, thing that it needs to do. And what made this happen is I found out about this awesome Ansible module, which has totally been under, under my radar. It's called Package. So normally in Ansible you say apt or yum, whatever it is, you, distro you're using, whatever the package manager is. And you, you clarify that, but you could just use Package in Ansible, and it will figure out what package manager it's supposed to be using. So you don't have to say, okay, this is Pac-Man, this is apt, this is yum. Mm. Just write Package, make one play, and then the problem is, okay, well, some of the packages are named differently in one distribution versus another. For example, the Chromium web browser could be Chromium in one or Chromium hyphen browser in another. So then I parameterized the package names. So basically I have this, this master variable list that says, if you're Arch Linux, the, the, um, you use this variable file and it says Chromium package equals, you know, whatever it happens mm. to be. Mm. That's pretty slick. And the way I do it is I use Ansible pull, which instead of having an Ansible server, Ansible pull, you give it a Git repository URL, and it'll just download it and run it and place localhost on the machine, which is great for me because my laptop isn't always on. So last thing I need is a server trying to SSH into my laptop, which is in my bag, and then sending me email alerts that it can't access my laptop. Well, of course, it's off. But by every machine doing localhost, then it doesn't matter when they get turned on, then the first thing they'll do is start downloading the new config, and it's smart enough to not run it if nothing's changed. So it's not going to run every single hour for no reason. It checks to make sure that there's actually been a recent commit to the Git repository, and then it pulls it down. If there's changes, if not, it'll skip it. So I actually thought about, I'm leaning towards doing this, making this all public so that everybody can see this, what I'm doing and maybe steal it and put it on their machine and change the package names to whatever they want installed or whatever. I'm not really sure if I'm going to do it. I think 90% sure I am because Phil gave me a solution for um, you know, how to handle some of the things I don't necessarily want everyone yes. to see. Secrets management. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about that in, in a coming show uh, once we actually go through uh, really solving the problem. We discussed it for a moment. Um, mm -hmm. Seems feasible. It does, and I'm using Ansible to set my passwords, too, and it's just, it just has a password hash, which I'd prefer not to leak out. That's really the only thing I can think of in the entire repository because the only thing you're going to find out is what packages I install, like what configuration files I like to use and things well, like and that. That's actually interesting to a lot of people. It is. Um, and my SSH config is very bare bones with only the, you know, actual options that I want to set so everything is pretty much custom 
So that's been a lot of work. I didn't know how much work there was going to be to combine the two. I thought, oh, it'll just take me 15 minutes. And no, it was like an entire week. Yeah. Things are breaking. <laughs> that's everything in tech. <laughs> so I made the decision that I'm going to, at some point in the near future, roll it into my Jenkins install. And I'm going to actually have some Jenkins nodes that are going to run the <clears> configs <throat> for me and do like a CI CD pipeline with it too, which would be a lot of fun because I want to learn that anyway. And I understand this is overkill. The amount of time I'm spending maintaining this is probably probably equal to, if not greater, than the amount of time it would take me to configure the stuff manually every time I reinstall my laptop. But it's way more fun, and it's <laughs> automatic, and I don't have to worry about manual changes. Other than that, I have a new series of videos debuting on my YouTube channel today for Proxmox that will be about, within the next two hours, it's scheduled to automatically um, appear. And by the time you're hearing this podcast, it's already there. So the first two videos are just install videos. That's just the beginning of it. So I've already done an install video before, but I wanted it to be part of the series. But it's going to go into setting up, like, a cluster of two servers and moving VMs back and forth. So it'll get to that point. The first two videos will be up today. I think some more will be up later on this week. So it'll get to that point. There's six videos total. I think by the end of the week, the first three at least will be up there. Um, So that's coming. I also, uh, just remind me, because mm-hmm. it's something popped in my head, uh, I had an idea for doing the Proxmox versus XCPNG. Okay. Um, I have an idea of how we can do the videos separately, but uh, cross-reference each other. So just Yeah, we'll after talk the after, show, the show after the show, and we'll, we'll, we'll plan yep. that out. That's something, the collaboration we've yeah. been working on. I, I think that these Proxmox videos turned out very well, in my opinion. Like I, my, I'm still kind of coming to terms with Caden Live. It's the most crashiest <laughs> program I've ever used in my entire life. It'll find any reason at all to crash. It's and tough. And I have to keep saving over and over <laughs> and over again just to make sure I don't lose work. But I'm getting the hang of it. I think these turned out okay. And then finally, my son and I have a YouTube channel. I've mentioned it before, crossgengaming.tv. We have a new episode that debuted today uh, where we go through and check out the PlayStation Classic. Mm. So we, we hook it up and we... we um, you know, have some commentary about that. It might be some of some interest to people out there that are into gaming. So we have other episodes on there already. So fun times. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, I guess then uh, glad we all caught up. But we're mm-hmm. going on to listener feedback. We want to hear from you. Call. And our show... Uh, or our email is show at smlr.us. Uh, and we've gotten a few emails and a few things from the uh, forums. On a, or we have a forum on our webpage. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Tom, you mentioned Discuss or Discord. Yeah, Discord. We set up. But I don't know if we ever linked to it. Did we? I did in the last show. I said you can. Uh, did I? I think there's a link in the last show to it. It's not been on all of our previous ones. And what I did was uh, because we set up the forums for my uh, Lawrence Systems YouTube channel, I went ahead and made a section for SMLR because I do get um, on my YouTube videos. I get SMLR questions, and I it's just easier if I put them all in the forum. And I, I actually want to make an easy place to discuss it, but I didn't want to have to set up a whole another forum server just for SMLR. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's there is some level of maintenance that forums require and uh, back-end settings and fun stuff like that, which I did a video on setting up this course, too. Not in nice. great depth, but in talking about the, the functional problems you've run into. Because their instructions are really clear, but yeah. yeah. Anyways. 
So the latest one came through, says is uh, 298 missing? Or yeah, I've so seen that. That's we actually didn't record a fresh looks, and yeah. we thought we had a bank one, but then end up we already had used it. Yep. So uh, sorry about missing the show, and uh, here's uh, we'll be trying our best to keep the weekly shows going. Yeah. For those of you that maybe first time listening, we record back to back shows when we have them, um, or sometimes record a few. We just didn't have any bank shows, but this is mm-hmm. one of our shows where we have the news in it, so it's going to be posted today. Yeah. All right, back to the feedback. <laughs> and then we have uh, one email. I think only one email that came through that uh, we had comments on um, about uh, changing the machine ID names. And I, mm-hmm. both Phil and, and Jay, you guys commented on that. I think they understood it better than me. <laughs> yeah, I, I still have yet to do a deep dive into why this change is even necessary because my entire career has been it's the MAC address that you know gets you a DHCP address. That's mm-hmm. just how it works. And I ran into the problem on uh, Proxmox where <clears throat> basically I had three machines created from a template and each of them were fighting over the same IP address and immediately... I think that they're looking or they have the same MAC address, but they don't. Long story made short, I found out that the machine ID was the same, and then that's how modern Ubuntu systems are getting a DHCP address. And our listener wrote in having the same problem on CentOS 7, so now I know CentOS 7 also has this. And then I checked my Arch Linux install on a different laptop, that also has a machine ID. So apparently it's definitely not just an Ubuntu thing. This is, it's, it's happening. So again, I'm not sure why this is necessary, but I appreciate um, the, the right in to let me know that there's more than just Ubuntu triggering me to look at other distributions. And then in the Proxmox series I'm doing, that's going to be part of it is going through when you, we create a template is going to show basically how to create the template and have that not be a problem when you spin up an instance from that template. So definitely interesting experience. You, you expect things to work the same. You don't know that something's changed, and all of a sudden you run into a problem, and it's something that hasn't changed in decades, and all of a sudden, oh, this is a thing. I, I didn't see that coming. So the next thing I'm, I'm going to look at is Debian, because if Ubuntu's doing it, I have to assume that Debian Unstable is probably doing it too. Um, one of the other feedbacks that someone had had was we talked about the dark theme problem with Firefox, mm-hmm. and there's a solu- someone who posted a solution in the forums for that. Yep, there's uh, apparently an extension for Firefox, yes. which I had known and then forgotten about. So <laughs> it's kind of interesting where you know, Firefox hasn't fixed this yet. I'm not really sure why. I'm sure there's a technical reason the developers haven't tackled this yet. It's not even just a Linux problem. I have... I unfortunately have to use a MacBook at work because it's mandated and have the same problem there too. So it's not even a Linux problem. It's a Firefox problem. And it's, um, I don't know, it's been the case for a while. So it came from MX Linux, how they have a tweak for fixing the the dark theme built right into the um, settings panel. And now I understand too that there's an extension if I'm not running MX Linux. See if I have any. Right. Was there any other emails? I'm just double checking. That's all that I saw. Yeah, same. Got a little bit of spam coming in, but that's yeah. all. Yeah. 
that's that's part of why we pause sometimes when we're doing this. We're actually reading the spam emails going spam, spam, spam. Right. <laughs> All right, I think that's it. All right. All right, so moving on to the Distro Watch, Distro Fever. Distro Fever, where we cover the latest hot distro releases and news. All right, so uh, the latest hot distros. You know, I saw one, and this is the first time I remember seeing it. It's CAE Linux, uh, which looks pretty interesting. Uh, it has, like, CAD CAM programs, 3D printing, electronics, math programs. Um, we were trying to figure out what CAE, Computer Aided Engineering. I don't know what Sounds it's about right. Yeah. Um, so we got the uh, latest uh, release of that, CAE Linux 2018. So it looks nice. It so is Computer Aided Engineering. Okay. Um, you know, it's weird it's not in here because it's obviously not a major, but it's a minor update to uh, PFSense, and it's not listed. Hmm. Yeah. Not a big deal. Update yeah, normally they will show FreeNAS on here. Yeah. So I don't know why that's not listed. I did get that update recently. Maybe it's just because it's major uh, releases covered. It's it's a minor because it goes from like P1 to P2. And then Clonezilla has a new release. Yay. So I haven't actually taken a look at this yet. Kind of interesting that this release came uh, a couple days after I decided to refresh all my USB flash drives and make sure they have the latest version. Now I guess mm-hmm. I have to go and do that again. Uh, Clonezilla is my favorite utility for cloning systems and restoring systems. Yep. So I've been using Clonezilla Live for, gosh, like over 10 years Yeah. Uh, when I've had to move things between different uh, hypervisors, sometimes it's just an easy way. You set up uh, Clonezilla to be listening on one hypervisor, like to move between Proxmox and XCPNG, or I've actually moved them from VirtualBox over to XCP. And so if there's some way you can't do a direct export, you can just Clonezilla it over. So it's good to see that that project is still alive, alive and strong. Yes. It works cool. We um, When we did the PenguinCon laptops, uh, we used Clonezilla to image all of them because you can use a broadcast and list them all up as listeners, and it'll do a multicast session and uh, broadcast them all at once and image them. I actually used mm-hmm. Clonezilla recently on the laptop that is in front of me right now, which is my secondary laptop. It's a Lenovo T480S. And, of course, it came with Windows on there, so I just wanted to basically take a snapshot of that default Windows install in case, you know, I throw this up on eBay or something want to sell it. I don't want to have to go through a Windows install. I just simply restore the um, Windows uh, image back to the machine, and then I can sell it. Nobody will have to mess with figuring out how to remove the grub bootloader or anything when they go to install Windows. So uh, <laughs> that's that's definitely one use case for it there, too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, with my Ansible, I don't have to worry about this now because I have that configuration automatically built. But before Ansible, it was Clonezilla. I would have a master image. They would have all my config in there, and I would just restore it in any machine that I wanted to set up. Yeah. It's a good Windows solution, for sure. The only downside to Clonezilla, <laughs> in my opinion, I don't know if they fixed this recently, is you can't restore an image onto a smaller drive. So if you take the image on a 500-gig drive, yes, that you is can't restore still. it on a 250, which is unfortunate, but hopefully hopefully someday yeah. they'll fix that. I've, I've run into that many times in the past. It's always irritating. Yes. Yeah. Issues. Uh, so Cubes? OS uh, now has a stable 4.0.1 release. Um, if you're running Cubes 4.0 and you're just doing your daily package updates, then 
uh, congrats, you're already running the stable version of Cubes. Hmm. Um, I've got my my VMs upgraded to Fedora 29 and the latest Debian. Um, the only thing that I have to complain about is Atlassian software that I run in the browser. It likes to crash. Mm. Yeah, that, <laughs> that Atlassian make... software and crashing? That can't be right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> So I know you've talked about using it, and <clears throat> I've heard other people using it. So it's basically just a bunch of VMs that you, like, interact and keeps everything separated. Yes, this laptop is a Zen hypervisor, <clears throat> and DOM0 is a Fedora 25 VM, and all of the DOMU uh, guest VMs are Fedora 29s or Debian's. So, but why the difference? Um, you get uh, a separation of concerns. So let's say I want to check my email and I, I log into my uh, email provider in one virtual machine. And then let's say I do work stuff or personal stuff. I can have a separate virtual machine for those. So in case any one of those virtual machines gets um, compromised, I can just destroy it mm-hmm. and recreate it. Or let's say I want to open a PDF, um, a common attack vector. Um, I can open up a disposable virtual machine to look at this PDF without having to compromise any of my other uh, virtual machines. Yeah, it completely makes sense. In my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, it'll actually show applications from, from one VM in another VM, but in the same window manager, so you don't actually have to um, have a VM hypervisor window. You actually can run the app in line within window manager. Is that still the case? Yes, yes, it is. Um, all of the graphics rendering gets passed back to DOM zero, so you can you can see all of your different applications uh, that you're running, um, just as separate windows, and you can put a colored border around them to help you. Uh, determine, okay, this is email, or this is personal, or this is a disposable VM that I can just throw away. I think that's That's what sets it apart from others, because, I mean, you could set up known boxes on any distro, and it's a turnkey solution, and you get the same thing. But what you you don't get is it's built-in interface where everything seems seamless. And I haven't used it myself, but I've read reviews of this, and and that's basically the, the thing that most people will brag about, is how the VMs, you wouldn't even know that they're VMs because they share the same window manager. And they might have different colored borders, but effectively they look exactly the same as a native application. And I think that's the part that sets it apart because it's really hard to achieve that. I've done that on Docker and other solutions, but it's really hard to, like, for example, watch YouTube videos in Firefox from a container or a VM and not have lag or even get the sound working at all. And to have have a turnkey solution where they figured that out, I think that's the value of cubes from what I've read. Yeah, that's nice. Do you know why they use Fedora and Debian? Um, it just ships. Uh, so you have your choice of whether you want to use Fedora or Debian? Yeah, or? I, can, I can pick and choose, and I can run both, or I can even run um, uh, any other distro. I just have to create myself a VM. Oh, okay. The DOM0 is still Fedora, though, right? Yes, that is correct. So you're running Fedora as your distro effectively, but your VMs can be whichever one. Yeah, and you're mostly blind to all that because it's the same way XCPNG works. It's, well, they're using CentOS, but the same concept yeah. for DOM0. Hmm. Very cool. Which I might the install way, this on something and just play with it. Um, the fun. folks at XCPNG have upstreamed a bunch of new patches to the Zen server project, so Cubes is getting those too. Hooray. 
Yeah, they, they're doing things that Citrix uh, wouldn't do is kind of what they were joking that Citrix has not been a big upstream provider for a lot of little Citrix has to features. really bring their A game now from now on because XCP, in my opinion, is coming at them hard. I mean, they, they really do. And we are talking to lots of large companies that they've let all their Citrix laps are moving everything over. Uh, one of them is a very big company that basically services Fortune 500 companies and they're moving all their data centers over to it. Good. Yeah. Yeah. They love it. They they're like it's a perfect solution because it over it's they've t- tried it and it over it installs over the top of it. And they're like this is amazing. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm very impressed by XCP and G. I love yeah. it. I absolutely love it. It's great. There was a time when I had to run Windows just so that I could update uh my tri- my Citrix uh cluster with their uh, awful uh GUI tool. And now um the Zen clusters that I do touch, I don't have to do that at all. That was and me in 2012 nice. with yeah. that Windows VM. We ha- I actually had two because, God forbid, it go down. I can't <laughs> manage the, the um, environment. We had three Zen servers, and we had two Windows VMs on separate uh, underlying servers. Uh, and if one went down, well, we had the other one. We could still get into the environment. And that's what we had to do to keep it going because nobody at that whole company would use anything but Linux. So. Um, Don't miss those days. They're changing one of the upstreams. This is the announcement. It'll be in January's release. uh, ZSTD. Z standard. That's a Facebook um, compression library, I believe. Yes. I saw saw those packages come through uh, in one of my systems just the other day. Yep. Um, They are now in the upstream and coming into the Zen server. So backups are going to take substantially less time and be more compressed. For nice. some of that, that's how they're that's how they're doing the integrations for some of the replication stuff. They're gonna uh, compress it so it takes less network bandwidth to get your backups done and things like that. So snapshots are gonna be faster. Moving the data around, replications and things like that are gonna be like it's. They have all the reports in the testing. It's outstandingly faster. So thanks, wow. Facebook. Mm-hmm. He well, says with yeah. some sort of confusion. Yeah, thanks. They, Facebook. they do some good things and some really bad things. Just to. Yeah, sometimes they can do something good, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, everybody complains about Gen Two is really hard to use. Yeah, what do you get when you make it fun? You uh, get fun too. Fun too. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a, a, a release this uh, week is oh. a distro called Fun Two, and it's Gen Two that they made easy, pretty much. So it's like um, and it's been around for about ten to years. Arch, basically, yeah. in, a, in a nutshell. That's, That's cool. That's neat. I've installed Gen 2 before, actually a couple of times. Have mm-hmm. you guys installed that as well? Yeah, I have. It took a while. You know, I yeah. don't think so. Yeah, it's almost Linux from scratch, except for they have all the packages ready for you. And if nothing else, you could uh, use it to make sure that your CPU fans are working because you will hear them while you're installing <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Uh, all right. So if you guys don't have anything else, we're going to move on to news. Tech news and views. All right, so tech news this week. Who wants to start? It's me. Yeah, Tom, you can start. All right. We're elected. All right, I, I love the register for their titles. That's why I often link to them. Uh, but the D in System D stands for, damn it, security holes found in the much-adored Linux toolkit. I don't Much-adored, I don't know if that title's correct or not. Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> the same thing there. <laughs> Um, but get to patching out. All the patches are completely available for this now, I think, for all this, the CVEs related. I didn't related. finish looking yet. I know some distros, a couple as of a couple of days, are still scrambling to get those in, but some already had them. For the Debian and Red Hat-based distros, yes. Okay. 
I didn't know if everyone had got it. I know that's one of the nice things about running a big distro is whether you're Debian or Red Hat, but they, they're pretty um, on top of things like that. So get to patching if you haven't patched. I'm uh, patching it right now. Oh, look. He's got I'm patches. literally <laughs> doing it right now. Real-time patches going right here. Um, Hacker Giraffe, uh, we, he had hacked the printers for Pootie oh, Pie, and yeah. now we've got the Chromecast hack. Now, this is the argument. Not The, the details become interesting because it's not as much – uh, the, the poke fun of is they took over a lot of people's Chromecast. It's not not necessarily a security risk, but yes, a security risk. But it kind of stems down to why consumer-based firewalls are just giant holes in the Internet of badness. And I don't know why. It's partly the Chromecast fault for opening up UDP uh, ports and a whole lot of you can't turn off um, UPnP, universal plug and play, and a lot of consumer routers. Mm-hmm. And because it just opens up, and IoT devices just can open holes in the internet, and people can look for those holes opened up in your firewall and come back at them and, you know, put Pootie Pie in your Chromecast. So um, I don't know. The consumer market's <sighs> got to get better. Uh, yeah. UPnP is. I get the concept. It helped people who don't need to do things like, you know, port forward, but. And when things just port forward on their own, it's much more dangerous. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's, if I'm not mistaken, I think Google was trying to point the finger at end-user routers and yes. say, you know, it's their fault, you know, they can just turn this off. And But it's but, the Chromecast that's asking yes. the firewall to enable it, so it goes back to the Chromecast. And that's one of those puzzles. So I never have UPnP turned on on any of my mm-hmm. networks unless there's some absolute implicit reason, which has pretty much never been the case. Yeah. Um, and things have workarounds for it. And the Chromecast uses um, some type of proxying it does to get data back and forth by initiating the connection. When it fa- and when it fails at UPnP, it makes a request. It fails because it doesn't exist on my firewall. And then it makes some type of proxy connection so it works. I never have a problem. My Chromecast works great. So I don't understand why they still need to do that because just opening up ports to listen it seems like a horrible idea. It is a horrible idea. It is. Yeah, I agree. Ask Hacker Giraffe. He'll tell you all about it. Matter of fact, that, you know, he starts out with, this is your friendly neighborhood Hacker Giraffe. That's all the story start. <laughs> I'm just letting you know your Chromecast but is insecure. He's okay because he's, you know, telling us that he's all about the ethical hacking. So, um, well, it's for someone to say that after they did something illegal is always fun. Especially to just to promote a YouTube channel. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, don't, I don't think he was actually, like, damaging the device or anything, right? It's just no, but if you, you reboot it, then it... If my door to my house is unlocked, you can't come in and let me know. <laughs> it still violates wiretapping. Right. Right? It does. Yeah. It is. So. Yeah. I agree. My, you should probably lock my front door, but you can't come in and just announce that to me. You know your front door is unlocked. I'm just here to let you know. You still trespassed. Right. <laughs> I know your intention was not harmful, but uh, it's kind of the same equivalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, VLC has now reached 3 billion downloads and has zero toolbars. And uh, mm. they were being honored, I think it was at TechCrunch, um, you know, for some innovation, which we all love VLC. Uh, it's such a we, – we are actually playing with um, the Ubiquiti cameras because you can connect RTSP streams, bookmark them in VLC, and keep constant streams up. And that's how the guys in the back of my office watch the front of the office when the front of the office people are busy or missing. Um they can just watch the cameras from there without actually logging into the app. There's some configuring you do, but it's really nice that VLC has that as an option. Hmm. Uh, it's actually fairly handy for testing cameras like that. Um, this is a more in-depth discussion, and I think it, it's a good read, uh, how open source took over the world. And uh, I think what's really happening, so you, you look at uh, – someone had posted this um, in one of the forums I laughed. Do, you, do any of you guys remember the 
uh, refund day that we all demanded refunds for buying Windows licenses because you couldn't for a while buy a laptop that didn't come with a Windows license. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And we were all a bunch of crazy people for even mm -hmm. thinking that you wouldn't want to run Windows. And I think part of it's the shift in power. We went from the young people playing with Linux to well, we're older and now we're in charge because those people that love Windows so much have mm -hmm. retired. So there's like these combinations of all of it, but it breaks down some of the acquisitions because um, you know, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, when there's money involved. When you see Red Hat being acquired and all these other big um, open source companies um, being open source, we give our code away, but yet we're worth money. That's an interesting concept that everyone said wouldn't work, and it does work. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I, one of the things I think is kind of neat about it is I, with open source, once you're giving the code away, the only value is the people. And right. I think that's a, a shift in dynamic because the company's secret sauce was their value, not the people. I can find some other person to be a code monkey for me. My secret sauce is no one knows how the sauce is written. Now the sauce is free. So the only thing that matters is the people there um, that support it and innovate on it. Yeah, and everybody else can help me make better sauce too. Yeah, and, and sharing the recipe doesn't... Uh, do that. So I think that's kind of an interesting uh, position that we've seen move. It actually, I think it's for societal. It actually shows the value of people, which was cool. You know, mm -hmm. so yeah. that, that yeah. is my big overarching thought on that. I think, I, I think community is <clears throat> is is just great for this kind of thing more than people realize because you just take a a, a project or a piece of software. And you think, man, it'd be great if I had this one feature. Oh, I'm going to write it and then submit it as a patch. And now everybody gets to benefit from this feature. I mean, even music players, I've seen features like pulling up lyrics to songs while you're playing music is something somebody thought of and submitted as a patch. And then the software becomes better and better and better. And the community aspect of it is great. And then, like you said, that's how, people, how companies make their money now, selling services and um, contracts and support, and then they give you the product. Right. And, you know, in the article, it says even the, over the last five years, it's really been the big change. And where everybody has been under the, the uh, these, or, you know, the, the way Red Hat did it, it's mm. mainly support. And now <laughs> with the growth of SaaS and cloud-based uh, services, that's really given it where... The, the services really come out and you can start selling it and who cares what runs behind it, right? That's majority of the people that are going to be binding this, that's what they think. But, you know, for us, you know, we know that these services are the ones that run open source and, and what's nice is that we can then host it ourselves, run the same thing if you're, if you're technical available for that. Or pay someone else to host it and they get the money. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and I, don't, I don't know if I mentioned this at the last show or not, but we had to repurchase, um, which is a proprietary license, but it's the recovery tool we use as our studio. And we had to repurchase a license because when we updated the uh, – there was a kernel update and some other updates for the Linux machine that runs it. It broke their license and their DRM. And the only way – you can't just reload it. You can't, Their DRM won't activate no more, so you have to buy a support contract. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Really? I bought the software already. Well, yeah, you don't have to buy a software game. You just have to buy a support contract um, so we can renew your license for software you already purchased. Wow. And that's common. It was worth it because we use a tool, so it's like a business decision, not a morally I, I'm against it, but because I don't want to purchase something again that I already purchased. But, and yeah. But I did it because I have a business that needed that tool to keep running. So those are things that really bother me because what if the company went out of business? Their activation right. – because it, con it contacts their activation server. And if you're out of support contract, you can't reactivate, which I think is weird. 
Wow. Even though you bought the software and paid dollars for it, um, you, it's the support contract's like forty dollars a year. It's really cheap, but <laughs> it's the principle of it's the, the principle. thing. Mm-hmm. I, it's not the forty dollars. It's the I bought this already. I don't need support. I just need my licenses. I've never had a support question with their documentation. Is really good. Thank you for that. Anyways, uh, Caden Live, the crashiest program in the world, according to Jay Lacroix. Yep, it is. <laughs> has, hopefully, has a less crashy version. Uh, there are multiple bug fixes in eighteen twelve dot one, and so go ahead. They have an app image um, and updates for that. I don't know which version I'm running on. I have to look to see if I if it came downstream to mine or if I just switched to the app image. Uh, but I I actually somewhat agree with Jay because I'm someone who's uh, edited roughly there's almost 700 videos on my youtube channel i did with caden live now so oh. i have a lot of experience with it the podcast too is made and in caden live podcast is used caden yeah. live as well so a number of years i've been doing the episodes with it so yeah i um, want to i will i will say i want to give them some respect too because the very fact that i'm able to create semi-professional videos on linux is great yeah. and thank i appreciate them for making the software available to everyone it is a great piece of software yes it is extremely crashy. However, now I just control S, save, you know, yep. repeatedly as I go. And it's generally not a problem. And it does have good recovery for when a project crashes. It's just the fact it does crash. It seems to happen the most often when I'm like cutting clips and rearranging things. Yes. That's usually when it that crashes. That is it, the part it has the hardest time with. Uh, you also will end up with the, it doesn't crash, but the clip's invisible problem. Uh, if you haven't experienced that one, the, you just have to close the program and open it again, and a clip shows back up where it's supposed to. My personal favorite bug is when I save a project, and it's great, and I close it, and I reopen it, and everything's in a random order. Oh, yeah. Even when I open the saved file, yeah. and I have to completely start over from scratch. Yeah. But a, a kid, it's, a, it's actually a great piece of software. <laughs> Aside from some of those issues, I think if they get that worked out, then it's even better. Right. Yeah, I remember last week we were talking a little bit, or last time, that uh, you can actually export the script from that and run it on a server. So yep. if you have a rendering farm, you can use Uh-oh. Kaden Live yeah. to do the GUI. And then, and the only like tweak in the background, you have to have the file paths the Thanks same. Thanks for reminding me of that, and actually, because... you can do the rendering on a separate server. That I is was, really cool. We were talking before the show about I was debating whether I still need my desktop, which I use my use for my editing. And I tried editing on a laptop, and it took about an hour for one video to finish. And that's a good idea. Maybe I'll just offload that work to my uh, virtual, uh, my Proxmox server, which has a very strong CPU, and mm-hmm. let it handle the workload. Um, I wish he'd do a few more videos on it, but if you, you can reach out to him. He's, uh, you, you met him, the Linux gamer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's done some of that work. He actually does some more advanced stuff that he's just not covered in videos because I've talked to him before um, about some of the Caden Live stuff. The guy's really knowledgeable on some of the oh. advanced features of Caden Live. So I've picked up on some when he, he – if you go back to his channel, he's got some editing videos of special effects editing with Caden Live that he did like three years ago. Um, he focuses mostly on the video game aspect now, but mm-hmm. he's quite knowledgeable of how he pulls everything together with Caden Live. Cool. Um, announcing unlimited free private repos. The folks over at Microsoft did make changes to GitHub. Um, now you can choose to share their code with either uh, the world or only the Microsoft and three of your friends. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they have some private repo options now, unlimited as opposed. But the the fine print, I guess, reads that when I was looking through it, that you can only share that private repo with up to three other developers uh, before you get a pay. Um, mm. 
Now, it, GitLab doesn't have that restriction as far as I know. So if they want to compete with GitLab, they're going to have to do better than that. Yeah, and I think there's uh, – I don't – and once you migrate, and I admit to not having uh, migrated away from GitHub because I'm used to using it. But anyone who migrated to GitLab, they're not coming back. I mean – Same. Yeah, That's what I did. Yeah, once you migrated and once you start using the next service, there's, it takes a really compelling reason to ever come back. Uh, so – and competition in the market is good. It's not like everyone should be on GitHub. I like that there's – people on other platforms something cool about gitlab is that even if your code is hosted in github you can still use their uh ci tools they they allow you to do that hmm. Hmm. and they even had a utility on their site that allows you to suck your repository straight out of Git, github yes. and right into gitlab they did a great you know, job brilliant yeah um Sync thing, one of my favorite utilities uh, that I use because it's, I mean, I like Nextcloud. It's kind of cool, but Sync thing is really lightweight. I run it on my laptop, desktop, and some of my staff uh, run it as well. Just keeping a handful of files in sync all the time is just, it does a wonderful job for that. I even have it managing my backups. So as my servers create backups, the Sync thing goes, hey, look, a new file. I will go put it where it belongs and hmm. syncs it with all the other uh, servers and I have it synced locally, and then I have it synced off-site, and, I, and it's really easy without any firewall rules or anything. You can write the rate limiting right into sync thing. So anything large I update here from my laptop gets updated to my server in the back, but then rate limited trickles out so it doesn't suck up all my bandwidth to the server at home, so everything's all always in sync. Um, it's not a major release version, although it is being called 1.0. It's just them announcing, okay, I guess we're stable enough not to be called beta. So they didn't add any breathtaking new features, but um, over the years they really have. It's become a really nice uh, project for syncing. Uh, basically picture hosting your own Dropbox. Um, it's a really cool system. NotePost, and if you haven't guys clicked the link on that, uh, click it. So Google Keep is cool. NotePost is Google Keep, but better in open source. Um, and I say better because wow, visually it's, it's really nice. It's a note, uh, keeping app that does have integration into Nextcloud. Um, and I got a minute, I was just looking at it, I didn't use it, but just the visuals on it, I was really impressed with uh, what a nice job they did. And of course, all the import and export of data formats are all standard open source, uh, open formats. So you can bring in notes that are open and control the notes through a web browser or export your data however you want. And of course, the project's open source, so you have access to everything in the back end. And there's a terminal side to it, too. And there's a terminal side That's to it, cool. too. It's it just looks like a really well-rounded app. I really like it for personal things. I may I may load that up and play with it. Um, What's cool in the terminal is that it's uh, it's still all color coordinated. Yeah, yeah. I, someone took some time and like they brought it to next levels. Like, hey, that Google Keep thing's cool. Let's bring it to the next level. So I yeah. thought that was kind of impressive. Now, I'm not sure how I feel about this, um, but I you know I do like when my tax dollars go towards things that are then publicly available. So the NSA is releasing a free reverse engineering tool. So the one government agency that listens to people um, cares about us enough that they're going to release some of the hacking and exploit tools. Now we've known about some of this tool because it was in a Vault 7 uh, before and apparently we're nice enough to share it with other agencies that have three letters, but now they're gonna be sharing it with the public. Um, so it's called the uh, I don't know how to say it. G H I D R A. Uh, Gidra. Gidra. So the Gidra tool um, is going to be there. Did you read any of this on Phil? Or I did. Days? Yeah. Um, it's a it's a decompiler. Mm -hmm. I think uh, something like IDA Pro, which I have no idea how to use, but I've watched countless hours of people decompiling uh, applications so they can see like. Um, uh, 
binary flow and all the data structures come through. And yes. this is for uh, people who call themselves reverse engineers. Yes. Um, you should stop by sometime when we have our uh, the hacker meetup because that's what they do mostly um, is people give us demos of reverse engineering and how they reverse engineer binaries to get uh, exploits. Uh, it's impressive to watch. I am. It's still a little above my head. Um, mm -hmm. But a few of the people, you've probably heard of Dynatrace. I have, yes. Yeah, uh, these are the engineers at Dynatrace that host it. So, ah. yeah, it's hosted over at uh, in Bamboo, Detroit. So right across where you used to work. So anyways, yeah, it's a really cool um, tool uh, to help do that. It's interesting that they're releasing it to the public. Um, it's kind of kind of pseudo been in the public, I think, since the Vault 7 release. Uh, but now it's officially in the public. So... I, I think anytime there's more of those tools out there, it just seems odd that it's from the NSA. That's all. Kind of related news, Metasploit Framework 5.0 is released. And so there's a lot of different hacking tools, and this is one that's really popular um, as well. I love all these different tool sets that more and more of them are open source. Um, and one of the distros that I think we've mentioned in DistroWatch once or twice, but like Parrot Linux is a even more complete version of Kali Linux. Um, I actually run these tools against my servers. Now, you you should own whatever you're going to use all these frameworks for to start poking at your servers and creating it. Um, I, it's a wonderful exercise in security to find out what you missed. Because if you start from one of these tools and start building the framework and start attacking your own network from the inside, instead of saying, I secured everything, you kind of get a more definitive answer. <laughs> Because I find out I, I left something open <laughs> um, internally. So it's kind of cool. Uh, like I said, this is uh, out there. That's more open source freeness there. Uh, and kind of related to this, I want to play with this RDP man in the middle honeypot. And this is kind of cool. You can uh, set up your own uh, credentials listening. And then it basically, because it's got man in the middle honeypot, um, you can put it in front of there and see how bad your users are. This I actually have an idea for, we're, we're getting into more security training with some of our clients. And what they should do is realize that they weren't prompted with Duo all of a sudden. And they shouldn't just enter their password. And it's going to give them a security warning. So I thought of putting this in front of one of our clients and seeing how they, I'll let the owners know, but let the staff kind of, oh, I just was able to log in this time and see if it, does that there's some really good episodes of the reply all podcast that deal with phishing and ah. how how oh i i'll never get caught in a phishing attempt and it goes <laughs> uh exactly like that hey how come i got prompted for uh my two-factor uh several times well that was a phishing attempt yeah. right um we have um some clients with incidents and they finally had enough incidents that it, it jeopardized their business. So now they're ready for security. And they, they, I like how they try to, I had a two hour meeting with them and they kind of try to push the blame. Well, you're our IT guy. I'm like, yeah. And he said, here's the emails where I said not to do that. Well, you didn't really explain the consequences to me well enough. I said that someone would take over all the PIA and you would violate HIPAA. What part of that do I need to go further, that there's potential jail time for ineptitude? I don't know at what point you need to listen to me. I told you turn on two-factor. You said it's too much work. I said it's it's kind of the law, and it's what your upstream health care people that you deal with require. <laughs> yeah, but it's a lot of work. And then they get breached. <laughs> then You didn't explain that it would cost us this much money. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> wow. So oh boy. it's fun to deal with people sometimes. So we're going to do some training. That's what the that's actually part of the remediation plan to keep their ability to be in business. 
<laughs> Last thing I'm going to throw out here is what uh, Phil hopefully will be able to quickly help me with later because Tom is uh, confused on a log format. But normally this works great out of the box. GoAccess.io is a real-time uh, web log system for monitoring your uh, web server logs and uh, compiling stats. It's kind of cool because uh, in this day and age, many people, when it comes to websites, they're always looking at, you know, oh, I just load Google Analytics in there, blah, blah, blah. This is nice because it gives you really great access to your data and how your uh, web servers are being treated, um, who, what the most popular pages are and things like that. It runs in a terminal, has an HTML output, and it watches the logs in real time in the terminal. So you can actually watch in real time the hits coming to your website and which pages they're going to. It's just uh, super novel to look at things like that when you have real time data like that. And it's, it's very actionable data. You can use grep and all of the other uh, log searching tools just like that, but go access is pretty looking in the terminal. Yes. So that wins some points for me. Yeah, and it adds all it does all the uh, compilation and you can tabulate through it so it tell you like you know, cumulatively give you all the stats historically as well. So it's pretty it's a pretty neat tool. And it runs in the command line. I love things that run in the command lines. And that's what I got for the news. Oh, uh, if you need to check the weather, we'll throw that in real quick. I did, I forgot that in there. C U R L curl W T T R dot I N. So in case you've been listening to this podcast too long, you're at the terminal, type that, and you can figure out if you should go outside or not. That's right. It's in Michigan. Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm done I'm done with outside today. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It has a, a nice uh It's another command line thing. Yeah. Stuff. yeah. All right. So I've got a few articles. Uh, Tom grabbed one of mine, so oh. I took that off the list. But uh, So Google is demanding that T-Mobile and Sprint does not sell Google Fi customers' data. So they just want to hoard it all for themselves mm. and not sell it to anybody else. Uh, hmm. And so, I mean, basically what it is is that there's location data, you know, that you, all the – because your phone connects to a cell provider, yeah. they know where you're at. Well, uh, you know, T-Mobile and Sprint has been selling it to other companies. And uh, this came <laughs> up because ATT just announced, oh, wait, we're not going to do that anymore. So I don't know uh, if they're actually not going to stop or if they're actually going to stop or what's going on. Uh, and um, so, you know, if you have a cell phone – Nothing's really private anymore. You know? I I tell it to a lot of people. You know, I had uh, that video I posted. I said, Facebook's not evil, but. And I, I just always looked at it as a public forum. Nothing I've ever posted on there is anything I wouldn't have said in a restaurant. I don't assume there's privacy. A lot of these people, I assume if I'm carrying a tracking device that knows where, that I can figure out where I'm at, so can everyone else attached to that device. So if you mm-hmm. want to go off grid, you literally just leave your phone where your phone is and then you go away (laughs) yeah so yeah yeah they i always but then again my kids grew up in a different world because they never they're growing up in a world where there was never a time where they aren't tracked so it's really interesting to think about so how's the next generation going to deal with this right like Mm. it's so ubiquitous to them of course we're tracked hard to say what they'll do i've got a corollary article to that uh there was a couple who paid i think three hundred dollars to a bounty hunter and he was able to find their phone uh, for them. And then they were horrified at all of the outcomes for that, mm-hmm. for, uh, to be tracked by just some random person um, for 300 bucks. Who, who knows uh, how much else that's being abused? Right. And if you take a look at um, the, the Google dashboard, if you've got an Android phone, even if you have location off, you, it can still see um, 
paths that you travel most frequently as your uh, LTE connection bounces from tower to tower to tower. Mm-hmm. So it's it's able to see the route that I take to my in-laws house and yeah, that's yeah. frustrating. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's the I, I think that more companies need to be more open, more about disclosure, about what they're doing with the data, because uh, General Motors they got in trouble for determining your geolocation and which radio station you listen to through their radio. And they were apparently selling that statistics. Um, and hmm. I was like, wait a minute. I did. I bought a car, not a spying machine. <laughs> so that's is that a violation of your privacy? I don't oh, know. I've got stories about that. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> it makes me not want a new car. All right. Yeah. The next uh, next <laughs> article I have is the government shutdown makes government websites insecure. Bom, bom, bom. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I kind of have an issue with that. Is It doesn't actually make the website insecure. It just makes uh, Chrome and Firefox pop up saying, hey, the cert needs, is uh, expired and needs to be updated. If only there was some automated way to freely update certificates. Yeah, really. That'd be crazy. Someone <laughs> should get on that. Right. Someone should write that. I'm sure yeah. the government will fund it and some private contractor will overcharge for it. <laughs> right. And it won't work. <laughs> so uh, I, if you haven't been following, uh, the U.S. is in uh, government shutdown right now, and this has been the longest, was it 23 days now or something? The mm-hmm. longest uh, government shutdown in United States history. Yeah. Yep. And um, Wow. So Basically, they're arguing about a wall and are compromising our firewalls. <laughs> <laughs> That's essentially what's happening. But they, uh, it's non-essential employees are furloughed. You know, they don't mm-hmm. get paid to be at work, and so they there's nobody there to update the certs on their websites. So, yeah, there's another article that they're losing talent because a lot of these people because they have such a really good security professionals have a high market value and there's everyone's hiring and they aren't getting paid. And they're kind of like, well, do yeah. I keep this job that I don't get paid for? <laughs> yeah. It's been almost. <laughs> How does that work? Do they get <clears throat> paid back paid when the shutdown stops or do they just permanently lose this money? I mean, so, how does that work? Um, the way it's worked in the past, cause I, I talked to some of my government contractor friends and they've always been paid at these shutdowns and, but it's not guaranteed. It is. They have to write basically when they turn the government back on. Um, they have to make another rider that we're going to pay you the back pay. They don't have to. It has to be. It's it's really bureaucratic. Wow. And to clarify, this is over eight hundred thousand people. Yes, that are currently go uh, doing work and going unpaid. Hmm. Yeah, it's wow. the essential people, and then there's unessential, which is many more than that. That's just not going to work and these are humans yeah Yeah. and they have lives and bills and medical conditions and all of that too you know my sister-in-law is a uh, paralegal and she works for the u.s uh, attorney office and and i didn't think about it and at christmas time she's like yeah i've been i haven't been working for the last couple weeks yeah well and you know you you add to that it's just general security updates that government is bad about in general Mm -hmm. (laughs) what about when no one's there <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's all I have. No, that's it's a fair assessment, though. Yeah. All right. So I have some things. Um, let's see. So first on my list is some Windows Seven installations deactivated with an update. Oh, right. it gets worse than that. Um, so basically, these are, uh, as I understand it, I'm not. You know, I've been kind of far removed from the Microsoft world for a while now, but my understanding is that they're like a volume license. 
type of thing where they actually have to check into a key management server mm -hmm. to check that they're validated. And instead of getting a, yes, you're good, they're getting a blacklisted response, which means that some people that are using Windows 7 workstations go to work and then all of a sudden it tells them their installation is not genuine. So mm. um, thanks to a Microsoft update, um, apparently that's what caused this. And that's one of the things that drove me to... Um, you know, drove me to Linux was specifically the activation. I was already, you know, frustrated with Microsoft, but when I first, not to make too long of a story here, but when I was first starting out, very, I got very low wage and I couldn't always afford internet. So basically my Windows XP time bombed and I had to go to the payphone and call a 1-800 number with a piece of paper and a Sharpie writing down this <laughs> stupid long, <laughs> long number. And, and mind you, we're in Michigan, and at this time it's November, so it's rainy, cold rain. Oh, at just the activate phone, your software. And you then bought. I walk all the way back home. Uphill twice? No. <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, it was only like a half a block away or a fourth of a block away. So then I go home and I just enter the number in and I'm activated. I'm like, why am I asking Microsoft permission? And I'm. I'm a poor college kid at the time. I didn't pirate it. I paid $200 for this copy of Windows XP. Mm -hmm. It's a legal copy. I understand I don't own it. It's licensed. But at the end of the day, it's like they're making this hard on the customer. For what? What are they achieving by uh, upsetting people? And, and this is just another example of why, why do they even have activation anymore? They're trying to get Windows to everyone for free, but they still have activation. So doesn't make sense. So this came in, and I thought it was kind of just ad reminding me back of my early days when I started with Linux and one of the reasons why I did that. So is this just yet another Windows update breaking something, which has seen this like the third or fourth time in the last, what, six months now? So that hit my news feed recently as well. And I found an interesting site called Review Meta. I, th I think I'm pronouncing that right, reviewmeta.com, where you can go on there and put in a URL of an Amazon um, product listing. Ooh. And what it'll do is, based on some kind of um, algorithm, try to tell you how many of the reviews are most likely to be phony so mm. that you can get a better understanding of the actual score of the product. It's trying to get those uh, phony reviews out of there and give you a more realistic um, input on that. So I thought that would be an interesting site for some people, not Linux-specific, but still pretty cool. And another one I have as well, I haven't had a chance to try this when I'm thinking about it. Apparently there's a open-source NVIDIA game stream client that you can use to install in your gaming PC and stream the game to your... Uh, Linux PC. Now, Steam already offers such a thing, um, in-home streaming, but that's just with Steam. And I'm hoping that this will be not limited to Steam, so maybe your Diablo 3 with your you know, Blizzard account or whatever you have that's outside of Steam might work as well. So I'm hoping to check that out, but it exists. It's called Moonlight, not to be confused with the um, you know, what was that, uh, Microsoft Silverlight, I think it was so, called? Yeah. They mm. called uh, the Linux implementation Moonlight. It's not to be confused with that. It's actually for the um, NVIDIA game stream, and it's supposed to allow you to stream the games to your Linux PC. So thought that was interesting. I did some reading about it, but I haven't had a chance to actually try it yet. But that might be a solution for someone with a game that isn't supported by Proton in, in uh, Steam, that maybe they might want to check that out. 
And moving along, um, the elephant in the room, <laughs> the Sunday morning Linux review, and this is one of the biggest Linux stories um, this year so far, but also not because it's Linus. Um, <laughs> Linux 5.0 is coming soon. It's, it's soon to be released. And um, I kind of predicted that this, this would be the case. I don't think I mentioned it out loud that this is going to be another one of those um, too many fingers and toes to count on release number bumps. And that's exactly what it is. That's mm -hmm. justification that he gave. <laughs> But he, but <laughs> not just that. Yeah. He went on further, and he says that there very well could be some features in this kernel that some people will love enough to think that it justifies a 5.0. For every person, they might have their own favorite features. So he says, and I quote, So go wild. Make up your own reason why it's 5.0. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're going to get the new, uh, what's that new VPN? Uh WireGuard is going to be in there. There you go. There, there's oh. your reason for there's the 5.0. Yeah. Jason Donenfeld, uh, the guy who created WireGuard, uh, he received a $10,000 grant from the Internet Security Research Group. Mm, nice. Wow. Uh, so he could continue working uh, on WireGuard. And support is coming to uh, the BSDs as well, I believe. Yep, it is. Cool. So, yeah, we're excited about that VPN. Yeah, I'll be checking that out at some point, I'm sure. Um, this might be of some interest to those of you using Fedora because apparently they're updating Chromium with VAAPI support. I don't know if I'm supposed to spell that or pronounce it. But basically, it's supposed to give you better video playback in Chromium. It's been rejected upstream by Chromium. So from my understanding, Ubuntu and Arch Linux and possibly some others have been manually in, uh, putting that patch in on their builds. So it's not an actual Chromium thing it was intended to be, but they rejected it. But, you know, the distro has kind of, like, hacked this in there. So apparently Fedora is going to be doing this soon. Not exactly sure when that's going to happen. But as a result, if you're on Fedora and you have appropriate hardware, your video playback should become smoother. Oh, nice. Mozilla Firefox 65 promises enhanced security for Linux, Android, and Mac OS. So Firefox 65 doesn't seem to have any features that are like really groundbreaking here, but it's going to include something called stack smashing protection built into the browser as of 65, which is basically a type of attack that utilizes a stack buffer overflow. I'm not a security expert of, by any means, but you know if they're building even more security into it, that's fine. I, I'm all about that. The feature will be enabled by default for all users. And it's also going to come with updated content blocking um, settings in the privacy and security settings. And I believe that should be out by the end of the month. So that should be uh, coming here pretty soon. And Debian is entering the free state for version 10, codename Buster. So it's yep. coming. Mm. So if history is any indication, I predict summer is probably a safe bet at this point. They never really give you a release date. They usually have a page you can go on to that tells you how many release blocking bugs there are in, uh, currently, and they just try to work on getting those down. So even though it's entering the freeze, it doesn't mean like it's coming out next month or anything like that. But I think at this point, late spring, early summer, my best guess will have Debian 10 um, available. A couple pieces of software I wanted to mention uh, Tilex 1.8.7 has been released. Uh, this isn't really that noteworthy of a release, but I wanted 
to use it as an excuse to mention Tylex on the podcast for the very first time on my end. It's one of my favorite terminal emulators. It's um, highly GTK, so it looks really good in a GNOME desktop, but you don't have to be using GNOME. You can use anything. It'll still work. There may be some GNOME dependencies if you're not using GNOME already that you may or may not already have in your system. It's a minor update overall. It basically adds, I think, some keyboard shortcut settings for switching between profiles. But I wanted to mention Tilex because it has some really awesome features. Uh, you could do basic, you could split the screen, kind of similar to how you do in Tmux. How it handles tabs is really, really smooth. It's um, definitely a great piece of software, and I recommend it if you're looking for a change from your normal terminal program. And speaking of terminal program, I saved the coolest one for the last. Um, if I'm pronouncing this right, Edex UI, which uh, is a terminal emulator that looks like something in one of those B-rated uh, Hollywood uh, hacking sci-fi <laughs> shows. It it just fills your entire screen with um, you know basic things that are moving and graphs, and you actually do have a terminal you can use in the center. And it's not just a screensaver. It's fully functional. You can run all your commands and scripts in there. And at first I thought that the uh, decorations were just that, just random things to make it look cool. Actually, though, it's fully functional even in that regard. The graphs are from your machine, so the CPU usage is your CPU usage. The file manager is actually your file system, and it has uh, a globe. And it's actually your location. Shows your, shows your network traffic. I mean, that, they've really thought this through. It really is, that is so good. your entire system. It feels the, cool. It, it, just go look this up, folks, after amazing. the podcast. It's, you're going to enjoy it. it. It is. And it's available via an app image. So you don't have to add a repository to your system if you want to check this out. Just download the app image, make it executable. And it even has touchscreen support. I'm touching my screen on my touchscreen laptop, and it's responding as an on-screen keyboard. I can I can use my mouse and click on the various things. So they really thought this through. It's a little bit slow, so it's, if you want a, a fast terminal window just to get some work done, this may not be what you want to use. But I think the, the best benefit is putting this on your screen, do your work through this, and just see if anybody walking by your desk has any um, interesting comments when they, they see this on your screen because it literally looks like something from... I don't know, like the movie Hackers or or something like that from back in the day. So it's really cool. And I have a link to that in the show notes. And that's edex, E-D-E-X dash U-I. Yep. And that's all from me. I've got a couple things. Uh, to celebrate 25 years of GNU, um, Bash 5.0 was released. Uh, Chet Ramey cut that release um, just a couple days ago now. And it's got a, it's got a whole bunch of uh, improvements, um, some cool new um, bash variables. As uh, initially there was dollar sign random, which would give you a random number. Now you have uh, a dollar sign for epic start, and uh, hmm. some other stuff. Um, I I use the bash shell every day. It's my shell of choice. Uh, it's what I what i learned on um yep. and i i love writing bash scripts mm -hmm. so in 2019 we're getting a brand new linux kernel a brand new bash 
and a brand new Debian. Like it's almost like we're doing a Linux reboot here at the beginning of 2019. It's already <laughs> been, it hasn't even been a whole month yet, and we're already getting our major components updated all at once. Will the government reboot in this year, though? That's our we know. <laughs> Have they tried <laughs> unplugging it and plugging it back in? Control Alt Delete. <laughs> it, yeah, I hate to use the term we use all the time, but it, it's so appropriate. Nuke and pave, man. <laughs> yeah. We well, while the government shut down, it's it's all the open source people, with, as brainy as they are, just let's come up with the new government right now while we have a chance to get it implemented. <laughs> Put it on GitHub. Let's let the AI take over. Let them manage us. People are doing a horrible job. <laughs> they sure are. Well, when when we're able to wipe this uh, couple of years from our memory, um, we can also wipe it from our Git histories too. Ooh. So if you've got secrets uh, stuck in your Git repo and you need to clean them out, like let's say you've accidentally left your Amazon credentials or a password hash in your repo, um, there's a tool that I've used to great effect called the BFG Repo Cleaner. And we'll have a link to this. Um, what this tool does is it's a faster and more efficient version of Git filter branch. And they say it turns an overnight job into one that takes less than 10 minutes. And it will forcefully rewrite your Git history um, to remove all occurrences of these passwords or hashes or any other string that you want to get rid of. The only thing you need to run, uh, have installed, I mean, is a Java runtime environment or a Docker container. Um, there's another nifty utility. I've been playing with SQLite for uh, some some little tiny stuff that I'm doing in the house. And I don't know all of the uh, SQL terminology or I don't want to have to go look it up. So someone uh, created this SQLite CLI called Light CLI. And it uses the Python prompt toolkit so as you're typing your query, it will, it will uh, return table names or row names or uh, SQLite um, commands. So if you do like a select star from something, you can see a list of your tables and it will help you build your queries in your terminal. And that, that makes for uh, faster iteration on doing SQL stuff. And a similar tool exists for Postgres and MySQL as well. Um, and those are PGCLI and uh, MyCLI. Uh, some, something else interesting uh, that I found, it's, a, it's another tool. It's called Hexel. Uh, for those of you out there who do any sort of hex editing or um, packet capture related stuff and you don't happen to have Wireshark, but for some reason you do have this Hexel tool, um, it it prints uh, your hex output in a nice colorful um, manner. So it's easier to determine that, oh, this byte and this byte uh, match some of these other bytes later on in this file. I thought that was interesting. It's H-E-X-Y-L, and that's available on GitHub. It's a really nice color coding it has. How did you find it? Did you have a special use you're using? I've, I've, yeah, uh, I was creating uh, EC... Uh, certificates for um, for a project that I'm doing and I wanted to output these certificates in a specific manner but 
I didn't exactly know what that should look like. So I used XXD um, to get uh, to convert a binary stream to hex. And XXD is installed uh, when you install Vim. It's part of that whole toolkit, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. But that's a side note. Um, so looking at uh, just looking at the binary and the hex output on my system using like XXD and then hex dump. I was like, I don't exactly know what's going on here because it's all just black and white. Um, so I did a quick search and I found this Hexel tool. I still didn't exactly know what was going on, but now it was in color and that felt good. <laughs> all right. Uh, long story short, solved that project. Uh, now I've got uh, nice EC keys in my home. All right. Um, as far as gaming news, uh, I grew up playing Mario Kart, Mario Kart for Super Nintendo, for N64, now on the Nintendo Switch. Um, and there is Super Tux Kart for Linux, and it just entered its beta phase. Um, Super Tux Kart has existed for over 10 years now, and it's got a whole bunch of new cool features. You can race uh, against your friends or people online across the globe. Um, you can run it LAN or WAN. Uh, you can run a server yourself. Um, and a Raspberry Pi 3 is powerful enough to run a Super Tux Kart server. Hmm. Um, there's also ranked modes, and it should be pretty close to uh, Mario Kart 64 as far as feel, and definitely as far as fun goes. That's a good one. That's a good game, though. We'll see if they can. It's that's a tough challenge. To, Nintendo does have some good games. <laughs> yeah, they do. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the last thing that I have, it's visualizing what weak encryption actually is. So I got this article from uh, Viking VPN, uh, their security blog. So this is a simple bitmap experiment. Um, they took an image, they encrypted it, and reapplied the bitmap headers to the start of the file to make it a valid image again. And then they looked at the actual image. Um, they didn't have to do any sort of mathematical attacks or simplifications or cryptoanalysis. They just encrypted a file, recreated an image out of that again, and then you could see um, the picture that they encrypted uh, with all of these different um, ciphers and hashing algorithms and there was two uh, algorithms that actually would encrypt your data and make it private um, once viewed uh, when it was viewed as an image again and those are AES 256 CBC which is a cipher blockchain and AES 256 GCM which is Galois counter mode um, We'll have a link to the Viking VPN article uh, that has all of the different commands you can run to do this test for yourself against whatever images you want. And this, this can really help if you want to see um, the, the encryption that you set on your web browsers, for instance. So if you don't want to just use uh, Mozilla's recommended uh, cipher list and you want to pick and choose all your own ciphers, well, here's a test that you can run um, to see what actually happens to pictures and any other sorts of files. 
I think this is a good visual way to represent also, people always ask about how VPNs protect you from things like uh, DPI, deep packet inspection, and this is what they can see. They don't know exactly the clarity of the JPEG you're looking at, but they got an idea until you go down to these, like you said, the AES, uh, GCM, and CBC. It's nothing but noise at that point. So I think it's kind of a, it is really cool that they visualized it like this. This is really neat. All right. Is that, I think we reached the end of the show. I think so. Wow. We had a lot to cover today. Yeah. It's a new year, lots of new happenings. All right. So you've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This was episode 298, 25 years of GNU. Uh, this is Tony Bemis. Tom Lawrence. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. And see you next time. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-7009. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. (laughs) 